What does the future look like for South Africa, both economically and politically? And what are some of the key factors that will affect the country in 2023? This is the Investec in Conversation on Investec Focus Radio essay. The series showcases exclusive thought leadership discussions that offer insights into a range of relevant topics that will spark discussion and empower Investec clients to create, manage, grow and preserve their wealth. I'm Nozipo Shabalala, and in this episode, I'm joined by one of South Africa's most successful scenario planners, Dr. Franz Cornier, along with Chris Holsworth, Chief Investment Strategist at Investec Wealth and Investment, and Professor Mtrebisi Ndlejana from the University of Johannesburg's Department of Politics and International Relations. Welcome to our discussion about the future of South Africa. Chris, I'm actually going to start off with you because the, the, the big question that we came in with here tonight is what is the outlook for the country? Where are we going? And in all of the scenario planning that has been done, I think very few can claim that they had considered and factored in a global pandemic, disrupted supply chains, as we've heard, unprecedented global inflation, even though we're seeing it um, coming back a little bit um, the Russia-Ukraine war, and all of these have an impact on where we find ourselves today. So a question with multiple prongs for you. Firstly, how do you see the South African economy? How would you describe it? What is your outlook on the next 18 months? So how are you feeling? Um, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? And, and maybe just to, to, to force you also to begin to speak to some of the opportunities. Despite everything that we've heard, where do you see really good opportunities that need to come to the surface as we have these conversations. Yeah, thanks, Ozzie. I think uh, we should start off with what is widely expected for us. It is widely expected that we are going to be a failure as a nation. If you look at IMF forecasts for GDP per capita growth, which is the key measurement of development over the next three years, their forecast is that we are going to be in the bottom 10% of countries every year for the next three years from a GDP per capita growth. Now, I need to caveat that by saying the IMF is terrible at forecasting growth. And we've never been in the bottom 10% of countries for three years in a row. Not at the height of apartheid, not at the height of state capture, never. It hasn't happened before. And it's because of forecasts like that that South Africa surprises on the upside. Last year, we grew at 4.9%. We're surprised by more than every other country we track. So far this year, we're growing at 2%. We think next year we're going to grow at one and a half. Two and one and a half aren't great numbers, but they're more than our peers are doing. The US will grow at a half a percent next year. Europe will be lucky to grow at 0%. So we're actually growing by more than other countries, not less. But there is a structural pessimism in the forecast for South African growth. And it's not just the IMF, it's consensus, it's everywhere else. And that provides opportunity. Those forecasts are why our stock market trades on a forward PE of eight and a half, why our long bond yields are at 12%. There's a lot of risk in our market. And that means there's a lot of risk premium. And that's where opportunity lies. We've got a zig when everybody else is zagging, conditional on us having a reasonable outlook. And that is our case. And we'll address some of the other questions, I think, as we go through the conversation. Fabulous. So I'm going to zoom out a little bit, uh, Franz, from the South Africa 
ANC, DA, EFF conversation. I want to go back to the global picture um, of what is Putin's endgame. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the, I mean, Russian diplomacy for the last hundred years has, if you think of it, you must think of a tap. It's, it's turning off, off the gas and threatening to freeze little old ladies in Finland until Europe capitulates. And, and that will be how this ends as well. Uh, Russia's desire is essentially autonomy over Donetsk and, and Luhansk, um, security in Crimea, and, and no threat to the port of Sevastopol. If that comes uh, together with the step backs from Europe, which can best be motivated through turning off the gas, which is why these, what happened to these pipelines is a setback for that. Otherwise, I think it would have happened this winter, the European winter already. Then we see the end game in, in Russia. Um, and, and, and that's how it's going to end. So let's stay on the issue of the gas, energy. Chris, I want to come to you. Just take us to the global energy crisis first. Paint the picture there around what's actually happening, what does that mean for us, and then end perhaps your reflection on the question of ESCOM's debt burden um, and whether we are really going to just be pushing this out or is there a, a meaningful solution on the horizon about how we're going to get the lights back on? Okay, perfect. Um, just starting off on the, the global scene, the, the energy transition is a massive theme happening across countries. We've seen commitments from various countries to get to net zero emissions by 2050. That's Europe and the US. 2060 is China, 2070 is India. We, we've said 2050. And some of those countries have put in law, so it's a very serious commitment for them. As an example, in Europe, what's going before the European Parliament now is to ban all internal combustion engine vehicles, new ones, by 2035. So in 13 years' time, you won't be able to buy a petrol or diesel car in Europe if this gets passed. So they're very seriously going down this path. The, the, the problem is it's not really feasible. In order to go down this path, you need a lot of metal. Electric vehicles, windmills, solar, they're very metal intensive. According to IMF estimates, by 2040, if we're going down this path, we need to double copper production. We need four times as much nickel. We need 20 times as much lithium, as an example. There are other commodities too. Now we speak to the miners. We invest in the miners. They're not increasing production by enough. It takes 10 years to develop a copper mine. There'd be no major fines in the last few years. So how's it gonna happen? Either we're not gonna go down this energy transition theme and we're gonna be stuck with coal and gas, or we are gonna see a massive squeeze in the prices of these metals. And that's an opportunity and we invest accordingly. We think that that's the line that we're going down. So on the first front over there, there's a question around feasibility for the global energy situation. That's more than just what's happening at the moment in gas in Europe, it's longer term. On ESCOM, slightly different tack, but I'll be quite Ooh. brief given the time constraints. But the, is it feasible for us to take on ESCOM's debt onto the state's balance sheet? In a short answer, yes. The state is looking at taking on about 200 billion rand onto the state's balance sheet, and that will allow for the unbundling of ESCOM to be feasible. Each of the units will have uh, low enough debt to be able to um, survive, in effect. Um, how much is 200 billion? Well, given that we've got five trillion rands worth of debt at the state level, it's not a huge amount. It will take our debt to GDP up by about 3%. But note that our debt to GDP numbers, our trajectory has actually been consistently improving over each of the past couple of years. We're one of the very few countries to have seen that, by the way. 
This year, government revenue, surprise on the upside by 100 billion rand. ESCOM's debt is 200 billion. So it's not a massively unaffordable number. What we're going to have to look out for is the conditions that Treasury is going to attach to that. And we saw some of that today. Perhaps a request that ESCOM goes down the nuclear path, down the gas path. We'll have to see if that's acceptable or feasible. But the monetary amount is not at this point going to sink us because of the strength of the SA economy, the stuff I mentioned before, the fact that we've surprised on the upside. Yeah, we're going to stay with ESCOM quite a, quite a bit because I do think it's potentially one of the biggest conversations in the country right now. And, and before I move on from you, Chris, I just want to bring into the room the medium-term budget policy statement and what it is that you've taken out of, um, out of that uh, uh, policy statement that you think is going to shape and color uh, what happens in, in this country over the next um, 12 to 18 months. It was a clear sign that, that the adults are in charge. It was very pragmatic. Um, it, our, as mentioned before, our debt-to-GDP numbers are perfectly acceptable now. They weren't a year or two ago. They're perfectly acceptable. We've got ourselves out of a hole. In addition, if you look at the spending priorities over the next three years, they're very reassuring. More than half of that extra revenue that the government saw is being used to reduce the debt burden. It's not going to a basic income grant or the NHI. They're improving the fiscal position of the state. If you look at what they're planning for the next three years, infrastructure spend, buildings, roads, bridges, dams, that grows by 15% per annum. That's the fastest growing item in that budget. It was a very encouraging budget. I don't think sufficient attention was placed on that. Maybe you'll see more of that in February when the formal budget is announced as well. But we took away from that it's very good for growth in South Africa, very good for infrastructure, and probably very good for our bonds as well. Mm. Staying on ESCOM, so maybe, Prof, let's just build on this a little bit. I do want to get to the question of, um, you know, what needs to be true um, for um, those uh, who need to step aside to do so, especially in terms of their legacy projects. So I'm not ducking that one at all. But I, I want to go to another thorny issue first, and that is, the relationship between ESCOM's performance and the outcome of the 2024 election. How, how do you see that correlation playing itself out? It is, it is certainly going to, uh, to have some impact. It did have impact in the 2021 elections. ANC, ANC people were really crying that there was no electricity in Soweto. They were actually saying ESCOM was sabotaging them. Um, because they are used to not switching off, even especially around elections, because those are their key uh, people. Um, so, you know, you, you, you can't not have electricity um, because that, that impacts on the quality of life. Mm. And it also speaks to all the other wrong things that the ANC has been doing. Um, so it, it kind of ignites them to complain about many other things that are wrong. Um, but also, there are other things. I mean, we have parastaters in this country, uh, about 720 of them. Um, some of them are completely useless. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of hesitancy around, around, around most of them. I mean, they've been talking about this for the last 20 years. Um, so, yes, you have a practical leadership to some extent, but they're also ideological captives. Right. Um, because privatization for them is like a swear word. But once things deteriorate, Mark, once the crisis deepens, um, then, then it, 
it then forces them to do things that they would otherwise not do. Unfortunately, you see, politicians don't like to change when they are uncertain about the outcome of that change. Right. So they need to be pushed and forced into that change. So, so the, the worse things get, unfortunately, folks, the likelier we, we will have some initiatives towards serious change. Fonta, I wanna, I wanna, I'm, I'm watching your eyes and I've, I'm feeling that there is an absolute agitation and something you want to bring and share with us. So please take the floor. But also, what are your thoughts on this idea of we've got to get to a turning point and the only way we get to the turning point is potentially by things getting a little bit worse than what they already are? Yeah, it's, a, it's a right introduction. We, we are past the turning point. The turning point is behind us now. It's, it's already happened. Is pressure breeds reform. There's a state senator in America who's sort of credited with the statement that Economics is to politics what gravity is to jumping. It brings you back to earth. And there's, there's a lot of truth in that. The pressure builds, and um, as a consequence, the system starts to work. We become a democracy 25 years ago. We, we forget this in, in looking for reformers. And are they in, in the committee advising the presidency, or, or are they in this office or that? It's the wrong place to look. The, the, we become a democracy so that if we reach a point where the country is not well governed to the advantage of all its people and their uh, protests are not responded to effectively, they will start making different political decisions. That was the inflection point. Mm. And it's already happened because if we had an election today, the ANC would lose that election. It is only because half of young people don't have a job that we are at that point now and the lights are off and, and, and the like. And the risks in that are immense. And of course, you, you, you're right to flag them and to hedge yourself against them and, 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 and all, all the rest. However, you don't have to fix the problem to get out of trouble. You have to show people that the problem is being fixed and they will give you all the time in the world to turn it around. We'll continue this conversation in a moment. I'd like to remind you to subscribe to Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts for more in-depth discussions on some of the biggest issues impacting your business and your wallet. And if you like the channel, please take a moment to rate it. Okay, so I want to do two things. I want to come to you, Chris. I want to, I want to test a little bit the idea of um, the link between coalition governments and the economy. So our co coalition is good for the economy. We're hearing a lot about the, the, the probabilities of coalitions, whether it's an ANC DA or ANC something else, or it, it, it is um, the smaller parties coming together. Net, net, are coalitions good or bad for the economy? We've done a fair bit of work on this. There's a literature on this. There's a body of literature. You can go and, and research it. There's published papers on the impact of coalition governments on economic activity. And at first glance, it, it, it's not good. Um, Italy as an example, where you have a continually fractious government that often dissolves, and that's not being good for stability and not being good for economic. But, there's an important but in that body of literature. It turns out that if you scratch a bit, what matters not, well, what matters is not whether it's a coalition or majority party, but rather the quality of that coalition agreement. So we can't actually answer the question for South Africa just yet. We have to wait for whatever coalition agreement there may well be. And it's at that point that we'll be able to judge whether that's likely to be good for stability and economic growth going forward. 
So we can't, we can't answer just yet. So let's, let's go back to the audience. Let me start with, off with you, uh, Chris, and the question from Chris, um, which is, of course, the question on the future of ESCOM uh, with rooftop, um, you know, becoming um, cheaper. Are we approaching a, an inflection point where it's just so much cheaper just or better to produce your, your own electricity? And what does that mean for the state utility? Yeah, the, the answer is yes, I mean, you're completely correct. Um, but ESCOM will be unbundled into three units, generation, transmission, and distribution. Um, the generation component will have to stand on their, their own feet. They will have to compete against self-generation at home, and that means that they're going to have to be very much more efficient. If it was the case that they are running appropriately as they would do, it wouldn't be cheaper to stick solar on your roof. So they're going to have to sort that out on themselves, and there is a risk around that. The transmission and distribution part, that will still be fine because we are still going to be shifting electricity around the country. But there's a deeper point which is often not uh, recognized in that debate. If we do go all do that, solar on our roofs, we've recently done it ourselves and it's, you know, it's been a pleasure, um, the risk isn't not, not just to ESCOM, it's to the municipalities. Municipalities make a lot of money distributing electricity and they've got set budgets. So now they don't get their money what are they going to do? You, you can't raise the price of water, which is another revenue line out of them. So you have to raise rates. So you know, one eye should be on ESCOM and how they survive this, but the other should be on how municipalities are going to fund that gap. Um, and if anything, we should probably be penciling in above inflation increases for rates for the foreseeable future. Prof, let me come to you. Uh, maybe two questions to you. Given the history of what we've seen of coalitions um, at a local government uh, level in South Africa, um, why would we think, you know, a DAANC coalition would be possible? But is there anything that we can do as, as citizens to nudge that in, the, in that direction? Well, they will have no choice in 2024. They'll be the two biggest parties, so they'll be forced to work together. What else is there? Will they choose the EFF? They can't. Um, so they don't have sufficient options. Uh, they are the two biggest parties. Uh, both of them, yes, as I said earlier, have common interests. Um, so chances of them working together two years from now are, mu are much stronger than they've been in the last few years, because, mainly because they are forced to work together. Uh, on the grants question, uh, well, that's good politics. You know, <laughs> if the ANC says we are the only show in town, uh, you know, if you don't vote for us, then you don't get grants. Um, that's, what, that's what politicians do. However, there are other areas where they're being judged on. Municipalities are not doing well there. There isn't enough water. Um, people don't have seeds to plow. Yeah. So even the grant argument doesn't work that well anymore. Uh, take, for instance, KZN. They are, they are losing support there to the, to the IFP. Um, so generally, the quality of life problem is hitting the ANC. Um, you know, in the past, they could, they could get away with a lot of things because of grants, all sorts of, all sorts of grants, uh, but the, the fact that you don't have electricity, uh, people are losing more and more jobs, um, and there's no hope for the future. There is a leadership that seems to be inwardly looking. Yeah. Um, so, 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 you know, a lot of noise about corruption, uh, there's no sense of hope. There's no sense that these people care for them. And so that creates a sense of, you know, loss of hope. Mm. Um, so all these things are kind of impacting quite massively on the ANC.
So maybe just a quick follow-up on that. Do you think that some of the recent um, high-profile arrests that we've seen by the Hawks and so on are too far removed uh, from the rural um, reality that they are not, um, they're not translating as progress in the right direction in terms of fighting corruption in the country? It's just a drop in the ocean. Yeah. Um, there are many of them that have been implicated. Some of them are senior ANC people. So... Everybody is looking to see if anything will be done against them. Um, and also what complicates for the ANC even more is that the more you have these you know, uh, prosecutions, they will turn inside fighting each other, blaming each other. So you are likely to have between now and 2024 a party that is obsessed about itself, its own issues, bringing up useless debates. I mean, we had a debate about step aside in this country for almost eight months. Um, so you're likely to have that. You know, uh, uh, it's going to take a little while for the ANC to kind of create a new image, to create a new, a new narrative. Yeah. Um, and until that happens, they are stuck, I'm afraid. Uh, Franz, let's, let's pick up on the Gini coefficient. Our question, Gil is saying, um, invest uh, intentionally and meaningfully in BE. Um, and, and I, I want to maybe just address that and then bring in Pili's question about, you know, are we, are we really asking ourselves the question around what can I do as a citizen for a better outcome in this country? So BE, more BE as your reflection. Let's just start with Janai. Um, it masks, in our case, an unemployment problem that sits behind, which is unique uh, in, in, in the world virtually. And a half of young people don't have a job. The solution to that problem, which is the first step to the Jinnai problem, is very high rates of growth. And, and that's not theory. That's our own track record. Because in the first 15 years after 94, when the growth rate was again allowed to lift and hit that 5% mark, the rate of unemployment fell from about 30% to just over 20. And the number of people with a job doubled here. Yeah. The jobless growth story is just nonsense. It's not what happened through the Mbeki years. And when that happened, as, as uh, all ships get lifted, the, um, we were able to finance through cutting our debt bill the rollout of the social grants program, which for a time did extremely well in raising basic living standards. And as a consequence, the country calmed down politically a great amount. And the ANC was consolidating support. It was growing. So if you wish to disable, put back the pin in the grenade, as Valetsi Mbeki in Business Day, probably a decade ago, put it. If you want to do that, you need very much higher rates of growth. You're not going to get away with anything sub 5%. That means confidence is back. So that fixed investment to GDP, which is languishing somewhere between 10 and 15%, goes back to a figure near 25. Then we're in the clear, absolutely. Chris, two questions for you. Um, the first one being, can we become more competitive without a functioning railway infrastructure? Yeah. And how do we avoid grade listing? Cool, uh, will do. Um, I, I think the question was, will we be grade listed? Mm. Um, but I think part of that is, A, will we be grade listed? And B, what will the consequences of that be? So we've done a bit of work on that. So I'll do that one first and then sure. we'll translate. 
Um, we, we've spoken to our Mauritian colleagues. Mauritius, believe it or not, was greylisted not too long ago, um, and they got off the greylist. So we had a very detailed conversation with them of exactly what happened throughout that whole process. So there are a couple of things to note. First of all, it's not certain that we're going to be greylisted. The government is already implementing uh, some of the required actions, although it is at this point looking likely that we will be greylisted. What does grade listing entail? It means that when foreign banks are dealing with South Africans, there's an extra level of administrative burden to see where the source of financing comes from and a few other things like that. Um, what does that mean for markets and can we get off grade listed? Well, Mauritius got off. Zimbabwe got off. It's not impossible to get off. So A, we might get on, but B, we can come off as well. What does it mean for markets? It's not the same as a downgrade. There is talk out there that it will take 20% off our market. That's not based on the evidence. It's not based on chatting to the people in Mauritius to see what happened there. It's an extra administrative burden for our counterparties. Now, there might be some banks who say it's too much burden to deal with South Africans, the small ones, and they won't deal with us. But City, JP Morgan, they'll just hire somebody else to do that. So it'll be a bit more difficult traveling abroad. It's not, in our belief, going to affect the cost of finance for the state. So it's not something that we are particularly concerned about from its impact on the market. Um, on the Transnet question, that does concern us. We've recently spoken to Transnet as part of our typical due diligence, the due diligence that we do with market participants. Um, about six years or so ago, Transnet was shifting 220 million tons of freight on their rail lines. That's now dropped about 40% or so. They want to get it back. To get it back, it's going to cost, according to them, around about 100 billion rands worth of investment over the next few years. Now, there was an allocation in the medium-term budget policy statement. It is a drop in the ocean. It's not going to cover that. Now, they believe that they will be able to access that financing from the market. That's not clear. So we have an, an issue. In addition to the ESCOM 200 billion, there's probably 100 billion that needs to go to transit. And we don't think... We're not sure that they're going to be able to access that in the debt markets in the way that they think. So what is it going to cost us? 100 billion, do we need to do it? Absolutely we do. We need to increase their rail capacity by about 30% in the next few years. Now there's some companies that are on rail lines that they've sort of helped maintain themselves. They're less affected. The rest are affected. And it's, it's a key component of our thesis that we will be able to at least maintain our current exports. So it's something that I guarantee we watch very closely. And the picture is not massively encouraging at this moment. It's really just that the rot has stopped. And, and now we need to see those numbers start to pick up. And I, we, we watch it on a monthly basis. Ladies and gentlemen, can you please give my panelists a big round of applause? If you've enjoyed this Investec in Conversation episode, Please search for Investec Focus Radio Essay wherever you get your podcasts and hit that subscribe button.